As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen I'm never quitting on my mission, I'ma roll with what I'm giving Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing Better watch the way you going, better go in the right direction In the moment you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings And I know that for certain, keep on working, open curtains Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version Whoa. I'm never gon' give up, give up Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, hey Cause this is my road Now you gon' face the dawn you waiting for I said from night to dawn I write my wrongs alone In competition with warnings Ice galore Now I'm running toward that My life's finish Being a quitter But little, little by little They joking, telling some riddles Now I'm in my section Ain't willing to give up Know you getting knocked down But you gotta get up I'm never gon' give up, give up Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, hey Cause this is my road Let's camera action I'm ready to go You're listening to the Tom Thickland Show on WNHH LP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Harry, thank you so much for that introduction. Uh, it's really a pleasure this morning to have uh, uh, David Adams with me, uh, executive director of the Grouse, Groustein uh, Foundation Memorial Fund. And I love to say the Memorial Fund because the show in my mind is really about how do we memorialize uh uh, talk about history, tradition, culture, um, just the, the, the importance of the, this time on space, that time and space on, on the planet, wherever we are, but also to understand that the past, the present, and the future sometimes is, are an integrated way of looking at the philosophy of life. So without that's my, my kind of inter- introduction there, <laughs> David, uh, about why we're here. And the Memorial Fund, the, the Graustein uh, Memorial Fund, and as David Adams as the, the executive director, they're involved with a with really a, a tremendous mission statement. I was looking, uh, uh, David, at your at your, your 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 letter to the community, and we're not going to talk exclusively about the memorial fund, but but uh, for, in terms of philanthropy and giving back and really making society a better place, you're you're involved with an institution and a uh, I would say even even an edifice and an infrastructure that really is providing services to to, to a variety of people. But we're going to talk about culture a little bit. We're going to talk about you. Julio, for being here. Thanks, thanks for being here. I'm going to put you on the spot for at least 45 minutes and see uh, how many questions you can avoid, but I'll try to drill down and get get, get somewhat of an answer that I can uh, tolerate and, and understand. So good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So, so, so w- w- with with that whiplashing that I've su- subtle and not so subtle that I've given you, we're going we're gonna to chat about culture this morning. Cool. And uh, also about a little bit about your background, uh, your, your Princeton grad, uh, Columbia uh, uh, law school, Columbia School of Journalism, uh, worked in, in city government in New York. Uh, we also worked with something not in a better chance program, but helping students kind of get into college and, and to kind of make that jump, that transition in terms of uh, what does it mean to, to be an elite person from, the, from Jump Street and not let institutions define you totally. And how do you succeed in life in transitions? Um, worked for the uh, ACLU, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of variety of, of life experience, and also you, you, you and your wife, your lovely wife, just returned from Cuba. So you've been on this planet for a while. You've been a sojourner. I'm going I'm to call you my sojourner for the day. Welcome to the Tom Ficklin Show. And, uh, and how, do, how would you like to begin? 
Uh, any one of those places is great. Okay. Yeah. Well, if you recall anything that I can say, because I, I certainly don't. <laughs> well, certainly, so. I think what's freshest is the the fact, you know, and I think what's the 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 newest experience in my life is having finally mm-hmm. made that that sojourn, if you will, to Cuba. Mm. Uh, that was a trip I've wanted to take for a long, long time, and um, you know, being married to an Afro-Cuban, mm. uh, you know, was mm. glad to finally have mm. the opportunity to to go to the land of her mother's people. Isn't that something to see? And see? to uh, begin to get a sense, a taste of what is going on in Cuba, which obviously is at the end of, you know, a very long journey since the revolution. Yes. Uh, and a lot of struggles and, and a lot of progress and, and victories as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the thing that struck me, and it kind of reminded me of having visited a uh, refugee camp in the Sahara Desert mm. uh, about 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, how much people who are in struggle focus on education. Um, you know, when you visit several of the museums around the island of Cuba, one of the things you notice is how much attention is given to the literacy campaigns hmm. that started shortly after the revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the point where you would even have, you know, uh, the literacy workers marching with giant pencils in the parades, you know, I love Revolution that. Square. It was I amazing. That. It was beautiful. What was it a particular reason that they that the parade was being held or or they're just taking advantage of a, a cultural opportunity that was presenting itself? Well the parades, um these were actually pictures from parades from in the past. Oh, okay. And you know, and I think there's there's a tradition of, you know, sort of acknowledging Good. the revolution, you Good. know, on a on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And the the literacy workers also had uniforms, not just the military. Mm. So they would go into community and be recognized as people that were there to eradicate illiteracy and, and succeed in doing so. Tremendous. And when I was in a refugee camp in Africa, by the same token, under the harshest of conditions, and this was a, a refugee camp of a political movement, the Polisario, um, the, 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 the People's Liberation Front for the, the Saharawi, the, Sahara, the mm-hmm. Sahara people, um, and they prioritized education, and the children lived under the best circumstances there, so that you know they could continue their development as young people. So you know it was just kind of an interesting parallel. So, so that we hear so much here in the states, and I'm really glad you mentioned uh, Cuba and, and and North Africa. We hear so much in the states about our educational system, but just the power of education. And just because this is Black History Month, my mind as you were talking just went back to how your ancestors, my ancestors, you know, we couldn't read. And if we weren't allowed to read and ones that tried to read sometimes had their thumbs cut off or their eyes gouged mm-hmm. out, just mm-hmm. the, the power of knowledge and self-discovery and how do you improve yourself? We, we sometimes take, take for granted, we might not have enough ed, ed, equity funding and you're, you're involved with that issue deeply. Uh, but it, it does seem to be something generic to the human species. Well, it definitely has been a part of this journey for a long time. I just recently finished reading Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead, and one mm-hmm. one of the things that he lifts up, having structured the story on the slave narratives, is how you know difficult it was to be able to learn, and how much you could be punished. Indeed, uh, indeed. You know, even if you were trying to look at words, mm-hmm. um, or if it became apparent, you know, one of the things, one of the stories, talks about a, a, a black man who had previously been free and who had been captured and re-enslaved. Mm. And a white guy walked up to him and said, be careful. I can tell that you can read. I noticed you're reading the signs mm. in the stores. Mm. See? He said, don't let people know that you see? can read. See, see? so, yeah. so, so that, that police state surveillance surveillance is always kicking in. Again, this is the Tom Ficklin Show, and, and David Adams is with me in terms of the, the Grouse Stein, Steen, Stein um, Memorial Fund, Steen, Steen Memorial Fund. And, and Colin 
pronounce his name again? Colson Whitehead. Colson Whitehead. Google him, a national bookseller award. I mean, Google this this gentleman and his book, because we've heard about Pan- Panther and other things, uh, not only the Black Panthers in the movie, but Black Panthers uh, in terms of Stanley Nelson's work and, and even uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal. But, but this is a book that's received really national acclaim, international acclaim, and I'm glad you kind of re- referenced that. Well, and it was interesting because I was reading it while I was in Cuba, you know. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, there were mornings I would get up before my wife and, uh, and would pick up the book and read, you know, while she was still sleeping. Mm-hmm. And it just placed a lot of things in context. And while Cuba clearly has a lot of problems and has not resolved all of their issues around race, um, they clearly did resolve some issues around education. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, that in and of itself is fascinating to observe. Should should we jump? In? And I don't want you to have to feel totally pressured to talk about your efforts in, in terms of of education. But just your general analysis of why what we what we're trying to do here in, in Connecticut to improve our educational equity issue. Should we jump to that for a second? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I I'm not sure that we have a lot of clear answers at this point. Well, yet. I, I think that's a, that's the a fact that that that's why I'm so pleased to have you in front of me. That maybe talk about the challenges as you see them and define and even defining the challenges and and into into bites of of tactics and strategy. I mean, I think the biggest challenge is, is really um, getting everyone on the same page around education being a priority. Mm. Uh, I think the reason that you know, education is this two-class system um, and, and you know, functions the way that it does in the state of Connecticut it is it's not a priority for the majority of people in Connecticut or for the leadership of Connecticut that education work for every child. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you say that, and you've you've been here as executive director for three four years for, for four years, boy, you're, you, the baptism's over, man. Mm-hmm. Your, your your feet are on the mm-hmm. fire now. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, hopefully, you have your asbestos suit, yeah, suit right, on. Right. Uh, but as you know, and you're you you've gone through some of the elite institutions. We have a, a plethora of such a small state of of the of the Choates and the, and the Hopkins and mm-hmm. the and the and the Cheshire Academies and the Grottons and the Kingswood. So I would say it's a priority for some. There, there, it's a it certainly is is a structural priority for for some that can afford to kind of take advantage of these these uh, so called better better schools. No, no question, it's just not a priority that every child have those same opportunities. Indeed, indeed, right. and, and so so that 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 really seems seems to me to be the issue that many of our movers and shakers and even. Uh, people that might people of color that might be on this particular boards of education in New Haven or Hartford or Bridgeport or wherever, they may not even be sending their children to the school system that they're on the board of ed, ed for. So um, I, I can I concur. This this uh, what it was. So some of the things you're thinking about in terms of how we can create that more uh, massive and comprehensive public will in terms of educational equity are are what. Well, I think that the people who are, are most affected uh, in terms of their children and their lives have to really be supported in exercising their power, mm-hmm. owning and exercising mm-hmm. their power to push that priority in the way that works for them. Yes. And one of the things that, you know, has come back, you know, as we've begun to try to build a relationship with people around these issues is that people have made it clear to us that yes, education is important, but that they're struggling on other fronts as well. Mm. Mm. And so, you know, it's not up to us to define people's struggles for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to really, you know, sort of figure out how to be in relationship and be supportive to, you know, really listen and learn as people are defining that journey for themselves. Share so, a little bit of those other, those other, uh, uh, I won't say the other albatrosses, but mm-hmm. the, the other issues or, or circumstances well, you know, that. 
parents have made it clear that yes, their children are the most important thing to them in the world, and and education is clearly a, a huge priority for them. But they're also struggling to have economic stability, mm. housing, uh, the ability to you know gain access to job opportunities, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera, and um, and so you know day to day survival oftentimes uh, sort of can impede the ability to focus necessarily on good, education good, in good, the way that they would good, like to. Good, good point. Good point. Good point. I had a uh, uh, Ife toes here in the in the in the in, sitting in your chair. Uh, she's very much involved with parent uh, issues, parent teacher and student issues in New Haven. And certainly something we have to continue to kind of, kind of focus on. Um, we were talking just before we came on air about this current phenomenon of the black Panther mm-hmm. of the film. Mm-hmm. And it's become such an educational tool. It's become a cultural tool. It's become a, uh, a, a barbershop tool, a beauty shop tool. It, it's, it's fascinating how, whether things are a fad or, or just the, the currency of the moment, but how they kind of, Occupy people's uh, fantasies, their beliefs, their dreams, their hopes, their desires, and you've seen the film already. Yes. And any thoughts or comments in terms of this phenomenon that we're currently experiencing? I mean, I think that you know, as entertainment is, it's it's amazing and and wonderful for uh, young black people in particular to be able to see um, people of African descent um, living in freedom, exercising power, and wrestling with you know the sort of key philosophical issues. Um, I think it's also ironic, you know, that during Black History Month, mm. we are not able to sort of place that within a historical context and understand that, yes, in fact, there have been advanced African civilizations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, frankly, the first, you know, advanced civilization started off in the continent of Africa. And so, you know, this is not just a fantasy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, very little of that information has been, I think, distributed throughout the community because one of our education system is so mm. deficient mm. and because so many people have lost touch those stories you know Malcolm X said mm-hmm. that history really would provide the most benefit mm. uh, from studying mm-hmm. and going back to education absolutely mm-hmm. and and yet you know we tend to have even the debates that I've been reading online about uh, the black, the Black Panther movie have pretty much focused on uh, sort of strategies and tactics for today and very little of understanding, you know, but what are the historical antecedents mm-hmm, that can mm-hmm, really feed mm-hmm, into that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the 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 point-counterpoint between the two, you know, protagonists in the film are not uh, Du Bois and Booker T, are not Malcolm and Martin. They really present very different kinds mm. of ideas. Mm. And, you know, it would be great if there was some civilization that was, you know, prepared to provide that, you know, mm-hmm. sort of world leadership and to try to build some allegiance. Um, you know, uh, I, I recently went to a, um, a conference back in the fall um, for the at Goodwin College for the 40th mm-hmm. anniversary of, of Roots. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Colson Whitehead, in fact, was the keynote mm-hmm. speaker. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, what was also happening, and I mean, he is amazing. I, th- I, I would definitely recommend you read all of his stuff, but... Um, the Goodwin College had just also recently announced at that time that they had recently purchased part of Alex Haley's estate oh, yeah. and, and were showing it. And, you know, one of the things that struck me and that I didn't even know, um, there was correspondence between Alex Haley 
and Julius Nyeri around the mm. Pan-African Congress that was going to take mm. place in Dar es Salaam. Mm-hmm. And there's so little knowledge of the, mm. that kind of diasporic mm. communication and, 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 and work together mm-hmm. that took place um, that is not taking place mm-hmm. in the same way anymore. Mm. Mm. Um, mm. You know, one of the things that happened, and I, and I wasn't always even aware of what the underpinnings were, but I was a part of the Free South Africa movement in college. Yes, you're, because, you're at Princeton? Yeah, when I All was right. in college. And, and there was... A, a real clear sense that we were connected to the continent and we were, you know, that it was important that we sort of have some impact yes. and relationship to the struggles there, as well as, you know, some sense yes. that they cared about our struggles here. You know, and, and just as you're mentioning the Pan-African movement and many people are throughout the United States are celebrating Du Bois, I think it's like the 150th, uh, mm-hmm. particularly the, Phil- the Philadelphia uh, school system mm-hmm. and the Philadelphia library system, they're sponsoring having events year, what year, year long, but yeah, I mean, Du Bois and the Pan-African events in 1919, 1920, I mean, just mm-hmm. when you think of the uh, history and learning and knowledge, and that's it was the, one of the reasons it was so good to kind of have you on the, on the show during this the, this time of, of, some people say Black History Month, I'll say Afro-Future Month, I'll even say, mm-hmm. I'll even say African Genesis Month, mm-hmm. or, or 24-7, 365, let, let's not let the past uh, dictate the future, or, 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 learn, or learn from the past at least. So again, you're listening to the Tom Fuquin Show, and I'm uh, David Adams, Executive Director of the Graustein Memorial, the Graustein Fund. Memorial Fund, in, in, a, in a brief one or two sound bites, and folks just should kind of uh, perhaps consider googling the Graustein Memorial Fund. Well, how how would you, because you've been here all, you know close to five years now, define what you, what you guys are up to? Well, the Memorial Fund um, has existed for uh, quite a long time. In fact, and in in the form of the Memorial Fund, we are sort of approaching our twenty fifth anniversary. Mm. And, you know, 25 years ago, um, through the leadership of Bill Graustein, it transitioned uh, from a, a family trust fund to, you know, sort of focus mm. on primarily the, the needs and interests of the family to one that, you know, began to care about uh, community and impact on community. Uh, and specifically, you know, based on the lessons of the, um, the, the Graustein family, the importance mm-hmm. of education, mm. the, the role that mm. education Once can again, play. Yes, yes. Yeah, in and, you know, really providing opportunities and opening doors for people. And so, you know, that journey began 25 years ago uh, with a, a really strong 20-plus uh, years of focus on early childhood and mm-hmm. really critical, mm-hmm. the critical mm-hmm. role yes. that early childhood plays and, and, and the deficiencies in our early childhood system, which have not been fully resolved. And part of what became apparent five or six years ago, even before I got to the Memorial Fund, was that, you know, with all the progress being made in lifting up early childhood issues, issues of equity were still not still, being addressed. Mm-hmm, yes. And and so, you know, the, the Memorial Fund was beginning to make that shift when I got there and and adopted this mission to focus on equity and education. And we've been on a journey now that has, one, been a process of really trying to find out who's doing that work, uh, what gets in their way and how mm. can we support mm. them mm. in addressing, mm. you know, those issues. Mm. And, and it's still early in the process. Um, but I think we're beginning to, you know, get our arms around what we can do, what our role might See, be. And, and that's, that's so, that's so important for those of you that are listening. This is Tom Fickley. I have David Adams on exec, executive director of the cross time Memorial. All right. All right. And, uh, I'm, I'm halfway kidding with David. We've encountered, encountered each other in, in various uh, venues. Uh, uh, sometimes I've been more, arbitrary with him i'm trying to be nice on the air i got about 25 more minutes to go so i'm gonna work 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 on my discipline but it's it's a pleasure to have a radio show where i can chat with someone 
that really is kind of uh, embedded in the community. And before he even came here to New Haven, as I mentioned, some of his background before, and even a picture that I put up uh, of you from your graduation in the mid in mid seventies from we, you graduated from high school in Chicago. Yes. And what was the name of the name of the uh, the school is Francis Parker. Fra- Francis Parker. Um, and there was a picture of you with the afro, but also in your yearbook you had some words. You mentioned some names there, and to me that really gets. It, it, it struck me, I mean, obviously, for, when you write something, you can certainly change and evolve, and you may become a Democrat one day, a Republican another day. Hillary started off as a Republican. But you you mentioned a certain person named George. Well, I quoted George Jackson in my yearbook, and uh, it was basically his call to give up your life for the revolution. And people might, know, might, might, might not immediately recognize George Jackson, and certainly that name is, is a common name, but they'll certainly... Uh, recognize Angela Davis's name. So George Jackson was? George Jackson was a member of the Black Panther Party uh, who uh, ended up being imprisoned. Um, This is in California. And was actually the person that Angela Davis was visiting when she was then arrested and accused of trying to smuggle weapons into prison to help liberate him from prison. Um, But George was a, a major leader and thinker in the uh, Black Power Movement and the, and the Black Liberation Movement back in the 60s. And certainly, so so Google George Jackson. You don't, don't necessarily have to Google uh, Angela Davis. She was here recently at the University of Hartford. And Jonathan Jackson, George George's uh, brother, younger brother, played a, a significant role. And it, it, history is history. His story, her story, is always evolving and, and kind of changing. Even as we talk about it now in 2018, we might have talked about that episode in 2000 a little differently. We might have talked about it a little differently in, in, in 1980, but regardless of what you think about violence and courts and systems and, and decisions, the, the George Jackson, the, the Angela Davis, the Jonathan Jackson, the, the Black Panther movement, even back then, it's something worth reflecting as we think about where today is heading. We were talking out uh, before we came on air about whether we're in a, a state of, 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 of no, not, not really growth, but, but, but destruct self-destruction and, and the precipice of uh, losing our, our, our identity and national power. And so I tr- truly feel separate from what's going on in D.C. that we are at a stage again where um, people are, are, are taking steps to kind of save, not only the, save themselves and, and to save society. Sounds about right. Well, and so what, make, what makes it about, about right is you reflect on George Jackson back, in, back then and you reflect on, your, on, on David Adams today in 2018. Well, you know, uh, so George Jackson wrote a book called Blood in My Eye, and it was really about the, the racial violence that African Americans have experienced and continue to experience. And, 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 and it's interesting because, you know, we have had the chance to benefit uh, from the, the new sort of understanding um, because of the new Jim Crow about mass incarceration. But mass incarceration started, you know, a long time ago, way back when my uncle, Louis, um, was imprisoned back in the 50s in California mm. for 15 years for selling marijuana. Mm. Uh, so this, you know, process, I mean, it began, you know, since the Civil War, it's continued throughout. Sure, sure. When, when, when the ship, 1690, when the ships kind of came absolutely, over. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, of, of course, you know, slavery was just a mass incarceration system of its yes, own. Yes. So, you know, I, I think it's important to, to not get sort of caught up in the whatever you know democrat republican you know liberal conservative kinds of issues because throughout all those you know pendulum swings the condition of africans in america <laughs> still, indeed, indeed, pretty much remain indeed. the same um and so it, it's so important to you know keep that focus and to understand you know we we live in a time when even as 
mass incarceration is being de-escalated in some places, they have not begun to give the kind of support to people re-entering into mm-hmm, the society mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who had previously been denied an education, been denied mm-hmm. an opportunity, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. really steered into that school-to-prison pipeline. And so, you know, the work is not complete until you've resolved all of the issues that first, you know, put them there and, and make it so that they can live full lives now. Indeed. And even Michelle Alexander, and you, Michelle Alexander, and you referenced uh, her, her in terms of her her, her her work. She'll be at Central Connecticut State University in a few weeks, kind of Google two that. Days. In, in, two, in two days. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's, and I looked yesterday and they still said that you could still register, but it's first come, first serve. So, kind of check it out. I mean, even here in Little Old New Haven, we had Cornell, Cornell, um, Cornell's last name, your favorite West. guy. Cornell West is, was here recently, Angela Davis, University of Hartford, Danny Glover at Quinnipiac. So mm-hmm. don't, don't sleep on this little old, this little old state mm-hmm. town uh, mm-hmm. uh, for, for, for better or for worse that sure. th- this particular town did not want to establish a, a black college as it had an opportunity to, to do in the like 1890s, 1820s. Mm-hmm. But, you know, black people are still here. So kind of uh, we'll, we'll, we'll wield your influence the, the best you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, this is the Tom Ficklin Show, and uh, David Adams is here with us, executive director of the Grostein Memorial Fund. And tell us a little bit more about the, just about the fund, because I don't want any people to say, oh, you let Dave off the hook and you didn't give him a chance to kind of uh, chat, even some, some of your st- strategic investments. I think you had a, you have art, you have an art show going. Uh, there home. is an art exhibit at, uh, that we're sponsoring at the Keller Liddell Gallery. And that's, you know, really very sort of different for us. And I, I, I can't say that it's sort of typical of where we're going, but it was an opportunity to have um, a really provocative art exhibit mm-hmm. that I think peels back the subconscious in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, the exhibit is called The Rise and Fail of the N-Word, Implicit Bias and the Subconscious of America. Yes, And I think that one of the things that happened after you know the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act is it became very easy to sweep racism under the rug mm-hmm. and to pretend like we had resolved a lot of issues and and uh, you know to the point where you even began having people making these absurd statements about living in a post-racial society but when you look at the study that Dr. Walter Gilliam you know published two years ago um, that would you know illuminated the fact that even little black and brown children were being treated differently at that age yeah, th- by pre- child pre- care work. Yeah, preschoolers. Yeah, that's right. right. Black, 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 black young boys are being and, kicked and, out. And what know. what explains that? And we have to acknowledge that there is so much embedded, implicit bias. And you know, the art exhibit really is designed to you know sort of pull the rug off mm-hmm. and to examine you know all of those you know kinds of of ideas and feelings um, in, in a way that art can do so. And, and you know, I think. That it is something that's very difficult to 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 see, very painful, um, but at the same time important for us to continue to understand why it is that we can't seem to get race relations in this country right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Off the record, but on the record, again, this kind of tongue in cheek. I mean, we're talking to whoever's listening now could be anywhere on the planet. So, and these shows are archived, so I have to still kind of spot out this question. But off the record, there does seem to be your your thoughts about the the desire or this or the sense or the energy given to to convince others to do the right thing? Um, I think it's not so much to convince as to give people the opportunity. <laughs> okay, all right. You know, I, uh, I'm a right. firm believer <laughs> I'm a firm believer that our creator gave us free will. Uh-huh, all right. And then we want to give everybody the opportunity to exercise it in a particular way. But, but if someone says, well, I'm just, uh, I believe my free will, my ideal, ideological perspective is, you know, white supremacy is, I, I truly, deeply believe that the whites are better. 
And and that's true. And I think that it's you know one of the things that Malcolm you know used to explain how it was important to see the reality and then to prepare to function in a world that existed that way. Mm. I mean, mm. I think that part of the difficulty of this last year under you know Donald Trump is the fact that we had really deluded ourselves into thinking that his kind of thinking and way of being was something from the past mm. and that mm. you couldn't possibly get mm. a majority of white Americans to, you know, vote in favor of that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. especially, you know, white females in this country mm-hmm. who, you know, it, as a majority voted for him. Um, and when you looked at a significant majority of white Americans over the age of 40. Yes. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, I think it was just, you know, very important to remember this is the way it has been. And there's really nothing. I, I think the thing that we have to acknowledge there is nothing that should have ever led us to believe that those issues were resolved. Mm. Not that there was no progress, but the mm-hmm. issues have yet to ever be resolved. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And especially when you have integration, but you don't really prepare the teachers in the white schools. Uh, you don't change the curriculum and you don't empower the black parents and families to have you know an equal footing in mm. those arenas. Mm. Then you're going to mm. perpetuate those problems. Mm. Mm. And this is, again, you're listening to the Tom Ficklin Show, and I keep on repeating it, Dave, because it dawned on me, although I believe that uh, my show is better than anything on MSNBC or CBS or CNN or Fox or you, or Netflix for, or, or for you, uh, Jerry Springer lovers, et cetera. But nonetheless, people might not be listening. They might just be tuning in. So, again, it's just a pleasure to talk to, to David Adams, executive director of the Frostheim Memorial and, Fund. And, and, and kind of Google that because I'm— I'm I'm halfway joking, kidding, and repeating the the name of and him, and as well as the name of his, where he works, because you you've uh you have some staff. Let's talk about some of your staff. You you've you brought on uh, an education person, I believe. Uh, well, we he will actually start this week. Uh, Director of Educational Strategy Billy Johnson is a locally grown uh, mm-hmm. educator, uh, born and raised in New Haven, and has been an educator in the state of Connecticut now for uh, almost twenty years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, and generally, uh, I mean, you'll cer- he's certainly qualified and you, you will certainly pay him, but generally speaking, what, what's kind of his p- portfolio, as they say? Well, educational strategy is one that is specifically to help us think strategically about being effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole purpose of strategy, obviously, is so that you can uh, sort of, you know, <laughs> create the shortest distance yes. between where you are and your goals. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that it was important for us to bring somebody in with that direct educational experience to be able to understand the ways in which we can partner with and support both people within the educational system and people mm. sort of on the mm-hmm. outside trying to influence the educational mm-hmm. system mm-hmm. as effectively as possible. Mm-hmm. Key, key, key. R- r- really, really important. Mm-hmm. Really important. Let's jump back, if we could, to you went to law school. I did. And there are a number of people that go to law school, not to practice law per se. Mm-hmm. What is it about that law school experience? And the reason that my mind went there, David, is, is because I have younger folks that listen in and they're always trying to decide, as I'm trying to decide what I want to be, what I want to grow up with careers, mm-hmm. what, how does this credit card or this academic degree help me with my future growth? And the, the law, I'm always fascinated by folks that are attracted to law school and then find that experience to still be help, hopefully somewhat helpful uh, in terms of whatever their path might lead after graduation. So, know that I fully grasped it. I was a political science major in college, and I think there was somewhat of a natural progression that if you cared about government and politics, that law would be important to you. Um, After practicing law for some years, I got a fellowship, a Revson fellowship, uh, to teach at City College in their Urban Legal Studies program. Mm -hmm. And the director of the program said, teach what you wish you had learned. 
mm. and which was a real, I mean, just goldmine of an opportunity. Mm -hmm. and, and so I did two things. I, I taught one course on the history of law mm -hmm. uh, because I don't think most people really understand how mm. our legal system evolved um, and, and what its purpose is. And then the other uh, class that I taught was basically on sort of how do you use the law? What are the tools mm. of the law? Mm. Um, because unfortunately, you know, part of the deficiency of our democracy is that people don't really know how to access all of the levers in mm -hmm. our society. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, lawyers tend to be part of this elite uh, or group of people um, that tend to be connected to the ruling class because they have access to these various tools um, and have the ability to use them more so than the average person. And, and so it was my desire to, you know, really, one, understand how things worked mm -hmm. um, that, that made, you know, the study of law very important to me, but also to understand, you know, how the system was designed to support a particular sort of way in which the United States functions on behalf of some people and not others. Mm -hmm. So as you th reflect on, if not changing that, that, that calculus, but in, and, and not really abolishing all the oppression, but what's, what's in your mind from a legal, what, what should the legal system be doing? What, how sh should our legal system be trained? Should, should it be different, different training for legal education? Should we have different laws? What's, what's, what's in your mind about how to kind of rectify this imbalance that you can consistently see? Yeah, yeah, the, the law is, I mean, part of what I learned and why I quit practicing law is the law is not sort of the initiator. The law is an instrumental, mm. you know, sort okay. of institution. Okay. And so it's really a question of, you know, what do we decide we want our democracy to do and mm -hmm. to accomplish? And, and once there's a consensus that we want this democracy to function differently, then we can decide how to change the legal systems and, and legal education and, and civic education in general. I mean, mm -hmm. one of the things that's beginning to emerge in Connecticut is a number of, of funders in the philanthropic space are now focusing on how to improve civic Mm, uh, mm, education and, mm, and civic engagement mm, mm. Uh, because, I mean, you, you have this amazing movement, you know, coming in response to the, you know, the, the murders in Florida yeah, Parkland, sure. and, and, you know, I have to say, I, I have so much admiration for the young indeed, people indeed. in the face of this onslaught, you know, where they're just trying to exercise their democratic rights mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. are being attacked, you know, in so many different ways. Um, they should not have to, you know, sort of function in that arena without a deeper understanding of how our mm. system works. Mm. Now, I have mm. to say, they've been pretty quick studies, and they've been able to raise some really key issues mm -hmm, mm -hmm, in terms mm -hmm. of campaign financing and lobbyists mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. And so I think that, you know, it appears that we're taking a huge leap forward in this current struggle to, you know, really raise questions about, um, you know, gun issues in the Second Amendment and, you know, what's really important to this society. Yes, you know, yes, is it yes. people's lives or is it the interest of, you know, these different groups that make money off of gun sales? Indeed, indeed. Just as you were talking, Dave, uh, uh, the NAACP, the student chapter at, at Southern Connecticut State University is having an event on civic engagement for the young people and, and your rights to protest, et cetera. So we are, we, we're always in kind of a, I think always in kind of a movement, but this is fascinating to see how we can, you can become a, a historical agent in the, in the process, you can either support someone. Is is there is there reason to make a difference between an, being an ally versus being an accomplice? Uh, I wouldn't know. Okay, you know, because people have been talking about that. We we don't necessarily want white allies anymore. We want ones to be right right on the battlefront with us. So yeah, I think regardless of what you call it, mm -hmm. you know, the real question is, you know, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I think Malcolm, you know, basically said, you know, either you're part of the solution or you're part of the problem. Mm. So mm. the question is, what mm. are you doing to be a part of the solution? Mm. Mm. And, and what, what would Martin say in that regard as well? 
I don't think Morgan would disagree. I, I, I think, <laughs> right. I think that, right. was, that was one, you know, where he was always making that call, whether it was a call of moral consciousness sure. or, or a call to self-interest to get involved on the side of justice and to get involved on the side of making this a, a more democratic society and a society that was focused on the interests of people and not just the interests of institutions. You know, and certainly the Vietnam speech kind of, kind of speaks, speaks, speaks to that is his, no his presentation at Riverside. Mm -hmm. As some of you may know, uh, William Barber is going to be in town on March 27th and in terms of the moral Mondays and moral majority, but he's taken up that mantle in terms of the poor people's campaign. And mm -hmm. I've always wondered how historians would have reflected on what speech Martin would have given that spring uh, in, in DC, whether it would have uh, uh, darkened or shadowed or overshadowed or kind of a, change his whole his whole reputation if he had had a chance to talk about the the poor people's march which really people should pay attention to but we have a chance to pay attention to it in terms of William Barber's efforts. Well and Martin was clearly moving in a direction that was not um something that the the power brokers and the status quo was interested in. He mm. was becoming much more threatening to the status mm. quo. Mm. And so I think that you know to the extent to which the the majority institutions kind of create a narrative I think that he would have become someone that they probably would have been even more inclined to oppose having a holiday. Indeed, even yeah. even closer to a pariah kind of thing. Absolutely. And if you look at the tra trajectory of of uh, Paul Robeson and, and W. B. Du Bois, you can kind of see this this mm. not necessarily radicalism, but just just wanting to be wanting to be free. You know, back mm. to sing K. Just mm. just uh, why can't I just be a, a, a be liberated in my own psyche. Right. Uh, what's on your, as we kind of wind down for the next 10 minutes or so, what, what kind of comes to mind? Cause I have a t always 10,000 reasons to kind of uh, talk to you and share information and ask you, ask you questions, et cetera. Well, I, I would certainly want to focus on what's happening in this moment at the Memorial Fund and mm -hmm. encourage people to go to the mm -hmm. Keller Liddell gallery mm -hmm. on Whaley to see the exhibit, the rise and fail of the N word. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, it's a difficult, and, and even somewhat painful exhibit, but an important one to think about, you know, what persists in the subconscious um, yes. of, of, of America and, and to just remind ourselves that, you know, we can't just sort of rest. We have to be very mm. vigilant. Mm, mm, mm. Let's, let's jump back as, as we kind of conclude, if we can, we started talking about culture a little bit in general and then mm -hmm. the black Panther mm -hmm. movie. And you've mentioned, although you've seen it once you're, 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 it's, Correct me if I'm wrong, but you've mentioned that you might possibly consider seeing it again. Yeah. You know, I think the first time you see something like that, you're there for mostly for the entertainment value. And I, I would have to say it's, it's in a very entertaining um, film. Mm -hmm. But there's so much going on there in terms of various themes that are raised that, you know, I kind of want to go back mm -hmm. and have mm -hmm. a chance to reflect. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I think that was powerful for me and I was not a, a huge comic book fan as a kid, but I, you know, I, I dabbled in comic books. And unfortunately, Black Panther didn't make it to my neighborhood when, when I was, <laughs> yeah. you know, old enough or still doing uh -huh. that. Yeah. Um, but what struck me in watching the film is that you know, the real defining difference for the Black Panther is that unlike most sort of superheroes, mm. he does not have some distinct um, physical power. He does not have a gadget, you know, sort mm. of array like Batman or a corporation that mm. can, can do various things like Iron Man. You know, his power really emerges from a collective, from a civilization mm. that mm. has a historical uh, antecedent, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and it's very clear that there's a debt owed to the ancestors. And I think it's an important lesson to lift up mm. because none of us can really have power until all of us have power. Mm. 
Mm. And I think say it's that something, again. Say that again. Well, no, it's just it's clear. You can't have power in a vacuum. You can't have you know power by yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was very clear that without all of the the what that you know the Wakandan civilization had evolved, that the Black Panther himself, T'Challa, was not powerful in and of himself. Mm. Mm. He was powerful because he came from a line of people who had built a civilization and who were fighting to preserve that civilization. And I think that's a lesson that, you know, really deserves to be reflected on a little deeper. Mm, absolutely. And as you say, not only just in terms of your uh, locating your particular identity, but we were chatting before coming on air about the, what is it, the, the, the image, the, the future of, of America, per se, mm-hmm. in, in this regard. I, I think it's very precarious. You know, the United States is on the cusp of either, I think, huge um, disaster constitutionally, um, and, and politically, you know, we, we have a system that can allow basically a white minority government to prevail mm. for a significant mm. period of time. And, and, you know, when I say that people blanch, but, you know, let's think about it. Mm-hmm. You know, we have an administration and we have a party in power in Washington, D.C. that did not get the majority of votes in this country. Mm-hmm. They only got the majority of white votes. Mm-hmm. And yet that's OK to the majority of white people in this country. Mm-hmm that they can have power but not represent all of the different populations mm-hmm. in this country. Um, and so I think, you know, with gerrymandering and with control of the three branches of government and with the manipulation of the fourth estate, you know, through, uh, you know, fake news, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're in a very precarious situation. You know, we could lose our democracy very soon and and frankly, very easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think that people are being, you know, vigilant enough and focused mm-hmm. enough on mm-hmm. how, how important that is. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to see the efforts that Eric Holder and President Obama Mm -hmm. are doing to focus on the gerrymandering issues and some other forces are doing the same Mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. it's important for us to think about that because the ability to address any of the rest of these issues could become moot. Indeed. And and just as a, as a, as a a talking point or as a research point, just, just Google what's going on in the state of Pennsylvania in terms of gerrymandering and the, and the districts that have been proposed and the, 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 the blowback and the, the juggling in some of the uh, districts that have, that have been designed to uh, negate uh, civic power and participation. But we have a real life example in, in, in Pennsylvania and um, almost every state. And then even in terms of the census that's coming up and there's some debate about how the census is going to be, whether it's going to be comprehensive or whether people will be discouraged to participate. So as you referenced earlier, this, these are really, really critical times on the, um, on the black Panther, did you, well, no, I want to go as we conclude, and we have about three or four more minutes. Can I ask, I don't want to know the name of your son, but what's what's going on in his mind at the, at the moment? Uh, well, for, I have for, two for, boys. Well, yeah, either either one. Either <laughs> one. And, and, I, and, I, and I want to conclude on that because that's where I think our, our dreams, our aspirations, we, we elders need to kind of be more in tune or think about how we can be make this, make allow there to be a planet when they grow mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I it's interesting because I, I have um, a daughter and two sons, and my daughter is really the most civically minded of the three, you know, and has mm. been, you know, literally since even before she was a teenager. Mm. In 2004, she went down to Florida to canvas um, the, the election because of what happened in the 2000 mm. election. Uh, and at that point, you know, she would, she had just turned 14 but he you know came oh, became yeah. came to consciousness around this issue in 2000 when she was just 10 11 years old um boys i think tend to be very socialized to to 
be one very individualistic and to focus on their survival. And and so, you know, I've noticed the boys really trying to navigate okay. uh, what they recognize is a very hostile environment. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, both in terms of, you know, majority uh, educational institutions as, and, and just the generalized society. My yes. older son, even though he's as light-skinned as me, has been profiled in New York City, mm. stopped mm. and frisked, you know, the mm. whole nine. Mm. Um, my, my younger son, who's, you know, darker skin, um, was profiled at Quinnipiac mm. um, because some white girl accused him of having a knife, which turned out not to be true. So, you know, they, oh. are, they are trying to navigate oh. in a very difficult environment and very focused on their own survival and ability to be in a position to at one day at one point do something on Indeed. behalf of others. Indeed. And and as we conclude, that's a really a perfect I shouldn't say perfect, but it's realistic, but hopefully it's it's inspirational about anyone that's listening. If you have a young person in your home or in your church or if you see on the street, you know, think about them, pray for them, encourage them. There's something you can do to kind of make sure that their survival becomes more survival but more more thrival. And again, you really are, have articulated that the tensions that seem to be still be here embedded in America. But let's hope that there's some liberation and freedom fighters and educational liberators on the on the scene that will kind of make this a better place for all of us to live. Amen. This, this is the Tom Ficklin Show. And David, thank you so much for kind of sharing with me. Harry, thanks so much also for your tremendous work as a studio manager. And Paul Bass, I always like to give a shout out to Paul WNHH in terms of creating this vehicle for not necessarily fake news, but real news. Talk to you soon. Roll with what I'm giving, got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions, looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing, better watch the way you're going, better go in the right direction, in the moment you're stressing, but you're going to be counting blessings, and I know that for certain, keep on working, open curtains, haters swerving, because they ain't ready for your final version, Whoa. I'm never going to give up, give up, fall down, I just got to get up, get up, because hey. this is my road, let's camera action, I'm ready to go. Gonna give up, give up, fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, hey Yeah, this is my run, let's camera action, I'm ready to go now you gon' face the door you waiting for I said from night to dawn I write my wrongs alone In competition with warnings Ice galore Now I'm running toward that My life to finish being a quitter But little, little by little They joking, telling some riddles Now I'm in my section Ain't willing to give up Know you getting knocked down But you gotta get up I'm never gonna give up, give up Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up